If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Monday, January the 27th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. Our guests today, plural, here in our recording studio on the campus of Stanford University are David Brady and Doug Rivers. Dave Brady is the Bowen H. and Janice Arthur McCoy Professor of Political Science in the Stanford Graduate School of Business and is a Senior Fellow Emeritus at the Hoover Institution. Doug Rivers is likewise a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and a Stanford University Political Scientist. He's also the Chief Scientist at YouGov PLC, a global polling firm, and he owns what I think is one of the best descriptions on Twitter, quote, absent-minded professor, sometime entrepreneur, pollster, and econometrician, which is a long way of saying these gentlemen are both very good at what they do. Guys, welcome welcome back to the podcast. A belated Happy New Year, and what a fun year it's going to be for the both of you. Oh, yeah. I'm ready for it to be over, Bill. How many miles are you going to fly this year, Doug Rivers? <laughs> Not to any place any good. <laughs> Iowa, New Hampshire. Yeah. Nothing, like Abu Dhabi. A, <clears throat> nothing like a trip to Iowa in January. <laughs> okay, so you said the magic words, Iowa in January. Uh, here we are. <clears throat> you can even stay over to February 2nd. Yes. <laughs> A week from today, this is Monday the 27th, so we're talking uh, uh, Monday, February the 3rd. Tens of thousands of residents Democrats are going to huddle in gymnasiums and libraries and VH, VFW halls across uh, Iowa. I think in total there will be 17,000 caucus sites without turning this into a political science discussion. It is important to point out that this is a caucus, or we should, I guess, say caucuses, plural, not a primary. Just drop in and vote. Your vote is counted. That's it. Iowans gather. They talk about the candidates. They vote. The threshold that you get of the vote decides the uh, number of delegates that a candidate gets. Um, it's an interesting contest, and in that this is a pretty good predictor of who's going to get the Democratic nomination uh, in the last nine contests, contested races, I should say, in Iowa. Uh, the Democrat who won the caucuses went on to win the presidency. Um, it's uh, excuse me, the, excuse me. The, the some of the last nine times that they had a, a contested Iowa caucus, that Democrat went on to get the party's <coughs> nomination, and. There's an asterisk there because only two of those Democrats, Jimmy Carter and uh, Barack Obama, went on to win the presidency. Republicans don't have the same track record. Uh, the Iowa winner uh, has won the nomination in only two of six races. Only George W. Bush went on to win the presidency. Um, it's a little more complicated this time around. For one thing, technology is uh, creeping its way into the Iowa process. Caucus managers this year are using smartphone apps to relay results. Uh, which should speed up the vote counting so that uh, pollsters like Doug Rivers can get to bed earlier on Monday night. And, of course, when you bring in smartphones and apps, there is a question of uh, security. Uh, but this really stems out of the 2012 experience where Mitt Romney was declared the winner on the night of the caucuses. And 17 days later, when they finally figured out all the votes, they gave it to Rick Santorum, which by then was, of course, useless for Santorum. Um, the other controversy is uh, that of more information being released. It's no longer uh, the state party releasing delegates. The state party is now going to release the results of what are called the first alignment, which is how people vote when they first gather. And then they're going to release the results of what is called the second alignment when you reshuffle the deck and candidates are taken out of the process. And so this means that candidates are going to be spinning left, right, and all over the place. Whoever gets the most votes is going to declare a victory. Whoever got the most votes in the first round is going to declare a victory. Whoever got the most delegates and so forth. So. Having rambled on about that, here we go, Iowa. Doug and Dave, your thoughts? Doug? Well, first, this is an impossible uh, process to poll. Um, the uh, number of participants uh, is going to be, you know, anyone's guess. Uh, there is no, because the process is run by the state parties and not the state, right. uh, there is no, uh, you know, voter file history of who participated in the caucuses but, last time. But I'll bet there are two numbers you're looking at. Uh, one set of number is 171,000, and that's the number of Democrats who voted in 2016. Right. And then you're probably looking at 236,000, and that's the number of Democrats who turned out in 2008. Which is a record. Right. Because <clears throat> um, that's a measure of enthusiasm. Right. Um, when you actually run a poll on a uh, telephone or an online panel, uh, what you get is turnout numbers that are frequently three times what the actual turnout is likely to be. Uh, so people say they're going to show up, but 
showing up requires a big commitment. It's a three-hour process. Right. Um, the uh, second problem is uh, we ask people who their preferred candidate is, um, but uh, the process is one where any candidate that in the initial round gets less than 15% of the vote, those voters go reorganize with some other candidate, uh, which is not something that's picked up by the poll. Uh, the networks will run entrance polls, not exit polls. Um, so they get people as they're going into the caucuses, not as they're leaving. Right. Uh, so the, um, the traditional exit poll, which is unreliable enough, um, the entrance poll is, is a whole other beast. Um, so this is one where uh, it's very hard to predict. Uh, you know, there's polling all over the place. Um, so our poll that uh, came out yesterday on Face the Nation had uh, Joe Biden up by two points over Bernie Sanders. That's and, the CBS New York Times poll? That's uh, a CBS. CBS poll. Uh, YouGov poll. Okay. New York Times, which ran a um, telephone uh, survey of registered voters uh, with Siena, uh, had uh, Bernie Sanders up. Right. Um, the poll that uh, attracts the most attention is one register poll by uh, Ann Seltzer. Uh, and uh, that, uh, we haven't seen the final round of that, um, but who knows what it will say. Um, it's too close for anyone to make a confident prediction. And in the past, the polls have uh, often been off. Uh, so the Seltzer poll was pretty good on the Democratic side in 2016, but was uh, way off on the Republican side. Okay, Dave Brady, you actually have been to an Iowa caucus. I have. You're a product of the Midwest. Um, there seems to be this thing called intensity or devotion, if you will, because as Doug mentioned, it's not just a three-hour process. You also have to be willing to go out in the cold in Iowa. And so if the weather is not good, if you're not feeling well that day, a lot of reasons why you could just stay in and not vote. So who, so who owns the Passion Square in your estimation? I think uh, Sanders voters uh, have more intensity than Biden voters. I think Biden voters, uh, a great, good hunk of them are, are for him because they believe he has the best chance of winning. He's mm -hmm. the most electable. Uh, so Doug and I disagreed about whether the weather would make a difference. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I think uh, just on the intensity level, Sanders probably has the lead. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, but I agree with Doug. I, you, you can't know these things. For you, you, you can't you, right, you yeah. can't know what they come and they go. For one of the things they have when if you you can after if your candidate doesn't have fifteen percent, you can either go to another candidate or you can go home. And we don't have any record of who goes home, right. and how many go home. Right. Yeah. So uh, Sanders definitely has uh, you know intense support among some younger left wing Democrats. Mm -hmm. uh, Biden. Uh, support tends to be older. Um, we go to bed earlier. Yeah, but you also show up to vote, whereas <laughs> younger voters aren't that reliable that How way. How true, that's true. <laughs> okay. And it's pretty, they start pretty early. So. And to fill out the rest of the top tier, that would be Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. Right, with uh, Amy Klobuchar in uh, fifth place. Right. Um, Definitely doing better than she was in the past, but it uh, doesn't look like she's going to get to 15%. Yeah, fifth place interests me because in theory there are four tickets coming out of here, going on. But if Klobuchar were to somehow slip into fourth place, she moves on, and whoever gets knocked out of the first four has a real problem. Their campaign is kind well, of on life support at that moment. I thought well, my understanding was that if you get one vote in the Iowa caucus, you're eligible for the next debate. Did not know that. I believe that's correct. Hmm. Hmm. So Klobuchar's could, I think a fifth place finish would hurt, but I believe it's correct that one vote in the Iowa caucus. I don't mean one vote like that one <coughs> ultimate uh, delegate. Yeah, she doesn't have much of a campaign going beyond this, uh, so she needs a boost. Right. Uh, uh, a fourth place finish could be a moral victory for her. Right. Um, you know, I think the... Uh, the campaigns that really should be worried at this point are the Warren and Buttigieg campaigns. Why do you say that? Uh, Warren, uh, because uh, insofar as there are lanes in this primary, uh, if she's uh, 
third or fourth place, significantly out of first place, uh, and Sanders is first, uh, the left-wing voters are going to tend to uh, move towards Sanders, um, particularly since he's likely to do well in New Hampshire. Um, In the case of Buttigieg, he's the moderate alternative to Biden. Uh, He needs a reasonably strong showing. Uh, I I don't think either of them are likely to drop out before New Hampshire. It's Mm -hmm. too close. Um, But a bad showing here and a bad showing in New Hampshire, I think uh, one or both of them would drop out. Dave, you have written about Elizabeth Warren. You wrote an article for Real Clear Politics on her in December, and you've been looking at her poll numbers. And explain to me, she had a moment in 2019 where she seemed to jump to the front of the pack, and we seemed to think she was going to be it. And now it looks like that moment is over. So what what happened? Well, she always did better in the uh, YouGov polls. And when I pressed uh, Doug on that, he said it's because, and I think he's probably right, because they have a better set of who's actually likely to participate. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment uh, uh, when she passed in the real clear politics average, she passed uh, Biden. Right. So when I when I looked at it, I make the following distinctions. First of all, I looked at liberals versus moderate or conservative Democrats. That's about 55% liberal, 40% moderate or conservative. And then the second thing I looked at was electability. When you asked the question of, do you think your candidate could beat, uh, beat Trump? And when she first passed, she had very little support among moderates or conservatives, 8%. Her support all came from liberals, as Doug suggested earlier. And when you ask the question of electability, she was 75% said she could beat Trump and only 9% said uh, she would lose to Trump. But uh, the, the other question is liberals in this case and change said about two-thirds or more, a little over two-thirds, say they want someone who can win, <laughs> given that they dislike Trump. And she's fallen dramatically. So the last uh, YouGov weekly, YouGov Economist weekly poll, she's at 48% who think she can beat Trump and 32% who think that uh, she can't. So electability she is a big 70, issue. She got for 75% down to below 50 now. Yeah, she's uh, only 48%. And 50, uh, Biden still leads that electability. But uh, in second place is Sanders. He, he still has... Uh, a higher number. Yeah, over 50% think he'll beat uh, Trump. So did Warren do something wrong, or did uh, fickle electorate just change its mind? Well, she muffed the uh, health care issue uh, that her she was late to the party for Medicare for All. Right. Um, and then uh, when they got into paying for it, um, she wasn't able to get away with, uh, with uh, what Sanders is, uh, which is magical thinking. Um, you know, I did, it, it's hard to explain. I mean, she went up, uh, not based on any obvious events, but mm-hmm. I think by being a, um, you know, a stronger campaigner than people thought, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Sanders, uh, was quite weak over the summer and has come back of late, particularly in Iowa and New Hampshire. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, I have trouble saying exactly what it was, but it's clear that when Warren got to the top, then she started getting questioned more aggressively um, by uh, the other candidates, uh, and that seemed to hurt her a bit. She lost would, momentum. Would you, would you fellows say that's the same thing that happened to Buttigieg, who also had a yes. moment? Yeah, by the way, his, his electability rate uh, is, uh, I think it's only 38% of uh, Democrats think that he can beat Trump. I, I, by the way, I looked at that health care issue. I think Doug's right. It's partly the health care and the way she handled it. But even at the height of her popularity, 25, uh, there were about a quarter of Democrats who said health care is the most important issue. But among them, she, she didn't have much of a lead over uh, Biden. It was only 28 to 20 or something. I think just the whole pro- – it was health care, but the fact that she was waffling, didn't come out with the positions, had too many plans – and I think being in first place or being thought of as the leader puts attention on you, and she falls. Now, Bernie may face the same thing. If he wins Iowa and uh, starts out, he's, they're, they're going to press him on electability. Right. And it's not clear to me. He has very little support among moderate-slash-conservative Democrats, of which there are many more moderates than conservatives. Yeah, so if it becomes a Biden-Sanders race, uh, there's going to be a, a real effort to stop Bernie uh, 
among Democrats that are really concerned about winning the election. Uh, but I think uh, John Dickerson's line about the Stop X campaign is really a sign that uh, X is inevitable. Right. Very good point. <laughs> so in preparing for this podcast, gentlemen, I went back and uh, looked at the Economist YouGov poll that you uh, guys did over January 19th to 21st, and I came away with four takeaways that I'd, I'd like you to talk about. Uh, number one is um, this race seems to be about three people, as it was six months ago, which would be Biden, Sanders, and Warren. They just seem to occupy the top of the ladder. Second issue is electability. We talk about electability, but when you look at the data of that poll, electability far outpaces any other issue for Democrats, which I suspect is a reflection of both being out of power, but probably also the fact that Donald Trump is in the news almost every day, and if you're a Democrat, there's just fingernails on the blackboard reminds you why you want him out of office. The third takeaway, Democratic primary voters think Joe Biden has the best chance of victory, which means he owns electability square. But then the fourth thing that caught my eye uh, was when you asked Democrats, Republicans, and independents, who do you think is going to win? Democrats, about 65% think that generic Democratic nominee is going to win. 80% of Republicans think Trump is going to win. Let's assume the Democratic number climbs once you actually put a face with that question. But it's independents who right now, by about a two-to-one margin, think Trump is going to win. So here's the question. Do you think that's because of things Trump has been doing, or do you think it's just the sort of chaotic situation the Democrats are in a week out of Iowa? I think it's more the latter. Mm -hmm. uh, people's ability to say, you know, to play bolster right. <laughs> isn't great. Um, and there's a ton of motivated reasoning. Uh, you know, so uh, you can't look at the polling and say um, Trump is not an odds-on favorite to win re-election. Right. Uh, he's not ahead in, uh, in anybody's poll and uh, in national voting. On the other hand, you know, he lost by two points last time, so he maybe doesn't need to be ahead uh, to win re-election. Uh, but the, you know, any objective observer looking at this would say um, Trump is not a shoe-in to be re-elected. So the uh, Fox News poll that came out yesterday, which your uh, buddy Darren Shaw does, I think mm -hmm. has Trump trailing every Democratic frontrunner <coughs> right now. Right. Right. So he's in a missing situation. But uh, this issue With of those polls, I think it's important to note what Doug said, those polls, uh, there's a whole bunch of Democratic states and Republicans, and right. there's, what, 15, 14, 15 states where it's going to be decided. It's closer there than it is in the others. Yeah, in, in the battleground states, it's, it's even. Uh, but remember, Trump did rather well in the battleground states um, Very in 2016. Right. Yeah. Right. So this uh, issue of electability, so I, I noticed one curious trait about this election is it's been very hard for these Democratic candidates to dominate the airspace of late. Impeachment, day in and day out. Yeah. Yesterday, Kobe Bryant's tragic death. It just seems something comes up every day that just pushes the Democratic race to the back burner. Fox News was doing Kobe Bryant all day, and then at 3 o'clock it switches over to Chris Wallace doing a town hall with Pete Buttigieg, then we're back into Kobe Bryant next thing you know. So... Um, Here's one question, Impe impeachment. You poll impeachment, you look at impeachment. Is impeachment in any way casting a shadow over this race? Sure. I mean, first, uh, you've got uh, three of the Democratic candidates that have to sit silently all day. Right. Uh, secondly, uh, impeachment is, while, you know, there's a, uh, a plurality of the public once Trump removed from office, uh, it's not overwhelming. Uh, there's been no movement on the Republican side, and interest uh, appears to be waning a bit. Uh, so I don't think impeachment is playing well uh, for Democrats at this point. Uh, you know, it could open up, I suppose, but I, I think it's unlikely. I agree. the The arguments are the arguments are too complicated in, in the sense of pe people know what Trump is, know what he did. And the question is, is that serious enough to throw them out, out of office? It, it, it's not. It moves political junkies who watch CNN or Fox or whatever they're watching all day, but the average American is not much moved by it. Wrong? Uh, <clears throat> it's amazing how little information people have about this. Uh, so I'm not sure. Is, is Trump's defense that uh, this isn't uh, rise to the level of impeachment or it didn't happen? Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me they're arguing both. It's both. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> they're lawyers. Come on. They're gonna if uh, there's a third argument, they'll make it. 
Well, I mean, the, so, theory, the theory that you have to make it as easy to understand for voters with Richard Nixon is pretty easy. There's a break-in. Yeah. Bill Clinton is pretty easy to understand. Sex, but this one's a little... So more... a majority of Republicans, for example, don't believe that the uh, Russians were responsible for the <clears throat> hacking of the Democrats in 2016. Right. Uh, a majority uh, don't believe that uh, Trump asked the uh, Ukrainians for... Uh, uh, to investigate Biden, uh, you know, which has been admitted. Uh, I think on most things, we don't expect the public to be terribly well informed. And the Democrats made a bet in impeachment that they would uh, be able to attract enough attention with these hearings that people would uh, come around and agree on the facts, um, maybe not the conclusion. And that just really hasn't happened. Strangely enough, fully in agreement with that. Well, it is early this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about the fine art of retail politics, a phrase that became popular after Jimmy Carter in 1976 works the back roads of Iowa in a rather unknown governor from Georgia, wins the Iowa caucuses and goes on to win the Democratic nation to become president. Since then, the phrase retail politics, you have to go to Iowa, you have to knock on doors, you have to visit people repeatedly, the same for New Hampshire. If you don't show up, people take notice and you get punished. Retail politics is in a tricky position right now because, as you mentioned, Doug, you have how many people sitting in Washington for impeachment? Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, let's see, don't forget Michael Bennett. Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar, so that's yeah. four right there. Michael who? Michael. <laughs> well, <exactly. laughs> so Michael Bennett's still on the ballot. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Deval Patrick, I believe, is on the ballot. So these will yeah. be, if not Iowa, uh, New Hampshire casualties. But here's the question. The theory that you have to finish strong in Iowa, you have to go out and blitz the state. Joe Biden announced today that he's going to do 20 cities in the, this week and do about every, every event he can possible. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are off the road. But... If Sanders wins next Monday and Biden doesn't, could you say that this in some way diminishes retail politics in Iowa? Um, or is this just a fact that Bernie Sanders has been in that state twice now in two cycles and he's just a known presence and so it doesn't matter that he has to be there that much. He is he's a known person. Yeah. Um, you know, how effective is it doing 20 events in Iowa. Right. Uh, you've got to do it uh, if you're going to be a candidate there because otherwise you're going to be like Bloomberg, you're not participating. Um, it's not clear those have much effect uh, relative to what people would do in the absence of them. Um, to me, the more interesting question is why these caucuses with whatever it is, 230,000 people or 250,000 if it's a really great turnout, um, would uh, be a determining factor in the election. And I think it's largely um, a consequence of uh, when you have a lot of candidates, you need some mechanism uh, for people to decide who the top candidates are. Right. Uh, I agree that it's uh, a sign of qua non, you have, to, you have to go. But in this case, the supporters of those people, they know why they're not there. They're there because they're forced to be in Washington. And that's different from choosing not to go. So I think that it will not have much of an effect on retail politics, and I believe every, I believe uh, every Iowan and every New Hampshire person expects at least two presidential candidates to take them to lunch at least once during the campaign. Yeah. So it's still it's still going to be retail politics. At, at some point, some other state <coughs> will say, "Hey, we'd like to participate in this." Uh, they have. And, and New Hampshire and Iowa, as I recall, both of them, New Hampshire said, doesn't matter, you put whatever you want, we'll do ours, we'll do ours a year before the thing, a year before yours. So I, I think they're pretty well ensconced. That's a game two can play. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, but the Democratic Party is sort of... Uh, well, the party has agreed to this. <clears throat> yeah. Um, right. I mean, it's interesting from their perspective, uh, the Democrats do end up getting a state that's a little more moderate than uh, some that they might otherwise have. Um, I, I, so if I you recall how this, if you recall how this happened, mm -hmm. the Democrats had a problem, even though they were the majority party, they were losing elections uh, from 68 on. And so uh, they changed, so Iowa and New Hampshire were retail, and the idea was you get down, get rid of the street sweepers, and you get down at the end of those two. Then you have Super Tuesday, and Super Tuesday was packed with southern states because Democrats knew that the southern primary voters were closer to the November voters. 
And then when you added South Carolina was okay because Republicans win South Carolina. And uh, for Democrats, it's a huge uh, state with a lot of blacks, which are an important constituent. And then Nevada is important. Uh, it's a competitive state. And uh, it's important to the Democrats because they have a lot of Latinos and a, lar a large labor vote. So those four states, I, I, don't, I don't see them losing their kind of status anytime soon. Well, the, on Iowa, you notice at the moment that the Iowa Democratic electorate uh, is not terribly different than the Democratic electorate nationally. Yeah. It's just relatively small among Iowans. And you're talking on uh, caucus. No, he's, he's absolutely right. The, the, Democratic, the people of the Democratic Party in Iowa who are voting right. are right. going to be there or on the left. And also on caucus night, I think the turnout's about 15%. Yes. voters, so it's not on, not a, a, broad good one. on a good one, yes. <laughs> uh, but here's the question, gentlemen. Should we be starting this process in the likes of Iowa and New Hampshire? And for Democrats, this is an interesting question because why? This is a party that desperately wants to appeal to minorities, that wants to rebuild the Obama coalition, and so you're starting to winnow the process in a state that is 90% white, followed well, by I'm, New Hampshire, which is 93% white. I'm actually in favor of... Uh, Starting with retail, retail politics, I don't care if it's in Iowa, but I did in uh, 1996 uh, follow, uh, I was in New Hampshire and spent a lot of time. And I thought uh, Phil Graham, the senator from Texas, had a great message. But when he was there in New Hampshire, I followed, it, it just died. You, you could see he, he, there was no connection to the voters. And so that was, uh, that's an interesting thing. That's a good thing to find out. He could connect with Texas voters, but not New Hampshire. So I, I'm, I'm in favor of retail politics for the first. I don't care if it's those two states, but I'm not opposed to retail politics. I can see from Doug's look that he's not too yeah, I, big on this. I, I don't have strong feelings one way or the other, but it does seem to me that the process uh, in these relatively small states of going around and meeting people in person doesn't bear much relation to the ability to run an effective national presidential campaign. I, I can't disagree with that, but it does have a relation to getting elected, maybe. Okay. What do you think this race looks like if this starts in a purple state? Let's say it starts, or even a state Republicans or Democrats covet, let's say. What if this race starts in Texas? Then it's all TV. Yeah, the uh, you know the entry costs rises. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say after the the last uh, two cycles, uh, the Republican side having you know twenty candidates in uh, twenty sixteen, and Democrats having twenty plus this year. Uh, I'm not sure that's such a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you're going to have to run a national campaign, and the fringe candidates uh, in the end. Uh, well, I think Marianne Williamson just endorsed Andrew Yang. Um, you, know, you need some way to get them out of this process. Right. So if you want to be real politique and find the most electable Democrat run in a state where electability is important for the Democrats, but the pushback, and Dave just alluded to it, is money. So this begs the yeah. question of people like Michael Bloomberg and Tom Starr. The last Iowa poll I looked at for Starr, I think he clocks in at 3%. Yeah, the ability to move people with money, uh, I think we're going to see it uh, in a big way for Bloomberg, who's a better candidate than Steyer. I think the Fox poll has him at 10%. By, by the way, right. on the electability among Democrats, he has the second-best second ratio. Now 50% think he would beat Trump, right. and only 20% think he would uh, lose, which means 30% say, I don't right. know. Right. <clears throat> but he is, he's uh, coming up and... Coming up on that electability. No, so he's got a great argument on electability. Yeah. Uh, he can definitely run a very credible national campaign. <laughs> 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 um, the, you know, I mean, the problem is that the average Democrat thinks Bloomberg is a Republican. That's true. Uh, interesting. Bloomberg has shifted his message in the past week. He is. Uh, moving off of the biographical ads, if you're here in California, you just see biographical spots of, of Mike Bloomberg around the clock, and he's everywhere. I was listening to a podcast of a show called Pardon the Interruption on ESPN. Go to commercial break, there's Michael Douglas doing an ad for Michael Bloomberg. So this is just showering money everywhere in advertising. But Bloomberg has found a new hobby horse, and that's impeachment. So why do you think Mike Bloomberg is doing ads on impeachment? Uh, it makes him look like a Democrat. <laughs> 
And it's the issue that most Democrats care most about. So it's, I think it's well, smart. The base is very pro-impeachment. It's, <clears throat> it's a sign of you really oppose Trump and you're, uh, and, you know, I don't think it's going to move the numbers on impeachment, but uh, I agree. it makes Bloomberg look like he's, uh, you know, looks more like a Democrat because his big, his number one problem is, you know, ran as a Republican in, uh, for mayor of New York uh, and is too moderate for the average uh, Democrat. Right. Right. Uh, do you guys buy into the chaos theory of things for Democrats that in theory you could have three different winners in February? Then you get into March and Super Tuesday is on March the 3rd and that splits three or four ways and the next thing you know you have three, four candidates all slowly marching toward Milwaukee. Nobody pulling away in delegates and they show up and your friend Carl Cannon wrote a very good piece about yeah. this by the way. They all show up in Milwaukee and they have to find a consensus candidate and I'm not sure if that person exists. So we're obliged to speculate about a fantastic. <laughs> we, we have to talk about open, and yet we also have to talk about the electoral college. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. too. Uh, <clears throat> so <laughs> I've never lost any money betting there would not be a contested convention, right. and I'm willing to continue this time. Now that, that at some point it will happen, mm -hmm. um, I think actually from the, you know if. if the Democrats have three or four candidates, and the likely ones are a uh, uh, Sanders, a wounded Biden, and uh, uh, some other candidates that are polling poorly against Trump. The contested convention uh, might actually be a good thing. I just don't think it's likely to happen. Uh, I think it's slightly. <laughs> this is a question that comes up every year in these things. And you, you're all, your safest bet is to say no, so I'm going to go with Doug on that. I think it's a little more likely this year than the past. But uh, one right. scenario, suppose, yeah, suppose they Doug, did change the rules a bit. Yeah, <laughs> suppose well, they, Doug, have, sorry, they, they changed the rules for they, they changed the rules in, in the following regard. First of all, they're proportional primaries. So right. you can't win or take all, so you can't win California and Texas and just build an insurmountable right. lead. And then second, superdelegates cannot vote on the first ballot, but, unless that candidate is already over the top going in the convention. Right, the dropout thesis is what happens. Right. So, so suppose, suppose the uh, Doug's poll's right. Well, I tend to believe in his other than the, more than the others. So suppose Biden wins Iowa and then gets a bottom, maybe he wins New Hampshire. Well, then it yeah. looks like a roll because South Carolina, he's South way Carolina. up with yeah. black voters. He's yeah. ahead. In, so he could, he could roll across all of them. Right. Uh, so you, the problem with Iowa and is the way Doug started the program was exactly right. Iowa is exceedingly hard to predict what's going to happen for all the reasons that he's – and Iowa is going to make a difference for what happens in New Hampshire. Yeah. If Biden wins Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, then there, you know, I, I think the rest will – fall into line. Right, okay. Uh, and Bloomberg is not going to contest Biden effectively. Great. Okay, now give me scenario B, which is Bernie wins Iowa and New Hampshire. Yes. So the opening for Bloomberg is Bernie wins those two. Warren is basically wounded uh, and drops out or declines to, you know, single digits. Um, and Biden... Uh, is very weak at that point. He would be in kind of a Jeb Bush situation right. where he would have yeah. money still hanging on but just not, not performing. And right. And there wasn't the situation in the Republican race in 2016 where you had someone like Bloomberg that can go the whole distance yeah. mm -hmm. uh, not caring whether they're losing every week. Agree. And, and so the other thing is you can imagine, as Ray Camp predicted, there, it, imagine a world in which Elizabeth Warren finishes third in Iowa and, and third in New Hampshire, she, who knows, she might stay in there anyway through the debates and take away from Sanders' ability to get ahead. Okay. So you can't, you just can't, what, what matters yeah. is what happens first in Iowa, moving to New Hampshire, yeah, and then how many drop out? How so many most of the polling suggests that <clears throat> Sanders has a ceiling, uh, yes. that it's very hard for him to get to 50% of the Democratic primary voters. So at some level, he's better off with the vote being split. Which uh, is a very Trump-like performance 2016, right. just yes. winning pluralities week in and week we out. We kept talking about Trump having a ceiling right. uh, in 2016. 
which he basically did. He hardly ever yeah. got over 50% of the vote. But he was racking up delegates at the same yes. time. Yeah. Right. And the 15% rule has the effect of, um, you know, the candidates that are polling in the teens do really badly among delegates. Right. Very interesting. Uh, scenario C. So we went through Biden, Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wins Iowa. She wins New Hampshire. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Not going <laughs> to even entertain it. Scenario D, Pete Buttigieg wins Iowa. He wins New Hampshire. Not looking good. No. Yeah, yeah my, my view is that's not going to happen either. But with Electability the is getting him. Buttigieg, if he were somehow to, though, pull off the upset in Iowa and then do it again in New Hampshire, would the party fall in line behind him? No. Um, yeah. I think electability, look, at this point, in spite of the fact he's done well, there's still only 38% of Democrats think he can beat Trump. Yeah, that, but if he starts beating other candidates, electability goes up. Yeah, I just, I see his... I see the electability issue getting him. I ultimately think that uh, that's what's going to be the big issue for Sanders. He has he has a cap on how well he can do in Democratic primaries. And once if he wins Iowa, then all of a sudden pressure's on him to say, can you beat Trump? If <clears throat> Sanders is winning, there's definitely going to be a move for a moderate alternative. Uh, and that will either be Biden um, it could be Buttigieg if Biden um, does badly. Real long shot would be Klobuchar, uh, but I think most likely it would be Bloomberg, um, uh, since he can. I, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, but it's hard to rally behind the person who's finishing fifth in in these primaries and caucuses. Well, we won't know how he finishes. No, I say Klobuchar. Oh, Klobuchar. Uh, that w she has to finish in the top four. Right. Um, yeah. In. Uh, Iowa and somehow get a bump in New Hampshire, um, which if you're fifth place, you're you're not going anyplace. Right. So I look at this Democratic field, gentlemen, and one thing I notice is a lack of what I'd call an alpha candidate, and that is a candidate with just sort of a dominant national standing, dominant amount of money. Somebody just kind of lords over the field and controls the field, if you will, uh, mm. controlling the T, as they say in squash. Uh, this happened to the Democrats in 2004 as well. Um, I don't think John Kerry was an alpha Democrat necessarily, uh, but it seems to be going on in 2020. Is this just a natural event in the tides of parties, or is there something particularly strange about the Democratic Party right now that has this kind of field representing it? Well, the problem is Biden has not been a very good candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, he appears wobbly in his campaign, <laughs> appears not to want to put him out there. Um, there was a point in the springtime where he was, you know, nearing 40 percent in the polls, and it looked like he was going to run away with it. Uh, but uh, he's not that strong a candidate. No, as we know from his past, yeah. his past runs, the the thing that he, the only thing he has going for him at this point, is that most Democrats think that he could beat Trump, and Trump has helped that uh, by the impeachment. Uh, by the whole thing about worrying about Biden as a candidate who could beat me. So that that's helped Biden. All right. Let me go to theory number two. In 2016, the Republican Party is taken over by a rump caucus of the party. Uh, voters who were really just mad at the party for a lot of reasons, um, fed up with wishy-washy candidates, and they find Donald Trump. Can you argue, Dave and Doug, that the same thing is going on with Democrats in 2020 and that Donald Trump is now Bernie Sanders? Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, Sanders, you know, <laughs> is, uh, doesn't organize with the Democrats in the Senate, even right. though he, um, uh, he's has a base that's uh, dismissive of moderate Democrats. Uh, it's very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, the party establishment, such as it is, is behind Biden. Mm-hmm. But what fuels Bernie? In 2016 with Trump, it was pretty obvious. It's a combination of immigration. Uh, there was resentment in the party for uh, what the financial collapse, for example. Nobody went to jail. First of all, turnouts. Uh, Wishy-washy right. candidates in the form of Romney right. and McCain. A lot of things built up in Donald Trump's advantage. Right. But I look at Bernie and, okay, I would say Hillary Clinton and what else? So, well, he had Hillary Clinton. That was the big thing. He ran against her and was the attorney. And for a bunch of young people, 
they thought he got screwed in 2016. They thought he should have won the nomination. They mm -hmm. thought he would have beat Trump. They're still there, right. four years older, but they brought others along. So it's that and the fact that he is pure in the sense that, I don't know what Doug called it, magical thinking earlier. He, be he believes what he believes. He, he doesn't back mm -hmm. off on, uh, when he when it comes to an issue of right. Medicare for all, he doesn't back off. He's not wishy-washy like Warren, who actually tries to figure out, could I pay for it? He just says, we'll pay for it. And yeah. and there's a certain... No, no, he says billionaires will pay yeah, for it. Yeah, billionaires. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, we. I don't mean I'm a billionaire, <laughs> but we, the country, will pay. The co it'll get paid for, and you won't have to pay. Yeah. And the point is, he's pure like that, and that appeals to right. an ideological base. I think Trump's appeal was less ideological and more were hacked off right. uh, at, at uh, the way things have been going, and as you said, mealy right. mouth right. candidates. So we can point to Hillary, <clears throat> we can point to feeling toward the Democratic establishment, and Bernie, as with Trump, there's an authenticity, but with Trump, there was an issues factor, and Trump latched onto immigration. So with Bernie, is it is it health care, or what, what exactly is Bernie cornering as an issue for No, I'd people? say the number one is inequality, the inequality. system is rigged. Uh, health care is just, uh, you know, he's been on that for a yeah. while, but that's the, you know, he's a socialist. He, and most Democrats, uh, the majority of Democrats don't want to lose their insurance, and unions surely do not want to learn, uh, lose the good deals they've caught. So that, uh, Medicare for all, is not a winning issue within the Democratic Party for him. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Democrats won the 2018 midterm by saying uh, Trump and the Republicans are going to take away your Obamacare and Bernie's running on I'm going to take away your Obamacare. Okay. So Doug Rivers, take us through your Monday take us through your Monday night next week. You're going to be in New York City with CBS News. Yes. On the desk, I guess we would call it, sitting on the desk. The decision desk. The decision we desk. won't be making any decisions. So <laughs> what data what data are you collecting on Monday night? Um so there's a uh, the, the entrance poll. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's the main source, uh, but the actual calling of the outcome is going to be based on the vote count. Uh, the entrance poll is just going to be suggestive. You, you have people in every one of the precincts. That there are places they're polling. Uh, the uh, or a sample. Yeah. So no. So the entrance poll is. Uh, I don't know the number, but it's, you know, 50, 60 uh, uh, polling places. Okay, so it's represented. Um, but the, the actual vote count is, you know, it's the parties collecting it. And, um, so you're using what they send you? It's a combination of uh, sources. And do they send it after each round? By round, I mean they get in, they make speeches, and then well, they speeches in, count vote and somebody else in the past, you did not get the, uh, the right. initial Right. vote but you will um, so this time we're supposed to be getting because of apps okay yeah. um, and in terms of questions that you're asking the voters going in you're not going to ask them what do you think of donald trump you're not going to ask them what you think about a patriot what, what well there's a standard exit poll which yeah, does that, have you know but in, in terms of those exit questions, poll questions what do you think the most salient questions are at this point in the race we know democrats don't like donald trump we know they, who are you they voting for <laughs> who are you voting for <laughs> who are you voting for is the fundamental question <clears throat> yeah well who's second after your candidate goes so you know the set of issues you've got in the primary become <laughs> you know sort of matters of religious difference whoever wins the democratic nomination is going to be making a pivot in the summer right. um, to how they win the uh, battleground states, which tend to be fairly moderate. Um, they, and it's going to be a combination of how do you mobilize the base in those states, which are minorities, but none of the battleground states are uh, places where the minority vote uh, is really um, big enough to win the election. Yeah. I, I do want to say on that, that uh, in uh, 2016, Sanders voters who, who supported him in the primary in the YouGov uh, poll that we polled the same people 17, 18 times, Sanders supporters, uh, a lot of them, about 10% stayed away uh, or voted for thir third-party candidates. And that, again, could be a problem for... Uh, the Democrats. 
Right. So I think this is a great question. So Buttigieg in the, in the Fox, House, Fox News town hall yesterday said that he would support whoever gets the nomination. And right. I think that's a good threshold question for each candidate, but it's a good question for voters. If your guy, the person you support, does not get the nomination, you still got to come out and vote in November. Yeah, so what people tell you in the spring is different from what they yeah. do in the fall. Right. We saw it with Trump in 2016. Yeah. We were just amazed at the number of Republicans who said they would not. for the guy. Right. And then by the election, they were voting for Trump and about the levels that you expect. All along in that, I was tracking that very carefully, all along, the number of uh, Republicans who said they wouldn't vote for Trump was uh, was bad for the Republicans. In the end... Uh, 92% about what you'd expect of Republicans voted for Trump, but only 88% of Democrats voted for Hillary. So her lead in that, and there are more Democrats than Republicans. So that was truly amazing. In the end, the Republicans came around, the Democrats didn't come around as much. Partly that's Bernie. <clears throat> yeah, the, uh, I mean, the Sanders voters don't vote for Democrats because they're Democrats. They vote for them because they're left to Republicans. Um, you know, you would think with Trump as the alternative, uh, that would focus the mind, but uh, not for everyone. I mean, there were Sanders-Trump voters that, uh, you know, really anti-establishment uh, voters. I think, I think a Sanders-Trump uh, if Sanders-Trump race would be fascinating because, in theory, there would be Democrats who just could not abide by Bernie, and they would perhaps go vote for the president, but they maybe can't abide by Trump. There are Republicans who cannot abide by Trump, actually. Um, uh, right now, Biden is trying to reach these 2016 Trump Republicans in Iowa. Election. So you would, think those, uh, you would think those Republicans would vote for the Democrat, but don't think they could abide by Bernie. So I'm not sure what those people are going to do. I don't know. I'll be in Canada trying to service. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that bad. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. It's not that oh, bad. Oh, God. Yeah. So final question, uh, Doug. In terms of polling, in terms of the science of it, um, just to allay those people out there who worry about it, what has changed in four years in polling? Um, gonna not a hell of a lot. Um, a few things are getting better. Uh, the number of polls out there that uh, don't wait by education is decreasing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the number one problem, which is the people who participate in polls uh, tend to uh, have high levels of education, uh, be you know overrepresent college graduates and people with postgraduate degrees, uh, who are uh, very democratic these days. Uh, and so that tends to overstate the Democratic vote. It tends to overstate uh, the vote for left-wing candidates. Uh, well, the other thing they're doing is, I assure you that the YouGov CBS poll in the battleground states this time will have, how many people are you going to be surveying in those states? Well, I mean, we did a lot last time. Uh, the problem was not most of the battleground states. It was the, uh, uh, you know, the Midwest, right. that swath from Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, Indiana. So you'll be polling more people there. We will definitely do more in those states, and yep. we will pay more attention to the within-state composition. Um, so uh, state-level polling is more difficult because... Uh, you can get national polling right by essentially getting national demographics right. Um, within a state, uh, we learned there were bigger urban-rural differences than we were used to. Um, and state-level demographics by geography are not something that national pollsters uh, do that well. Um, okay. Final question. I think uh, voting begins in Iowa at 7 o'clock local time on Monday night, I believe. Yes. What time will we have a decision by? Uh, well, it counts fast uh, because they've already essentially counted at uh, the local polling places. Uh, my recollection is it's uh, around 11 or so. Mm-hmm. And then you're in the field the next day doing another sample? Uh, we will be doing a big sample the day after trying to figure out what's going to happen in New Hampshire. The bouts. Um, I been trying to persuade our clients that 
you really want to wait until after Iowa to poll New Hampshire because that will, uh, you know, what people say they're, how they're going to vote in New Hampshire today is can be quite different than what was. And that can go both ways. Week. It's not it's not always a positive fact like it was for Carter. You remember in two thousand and eight, the Hillary vote when Obama won in Iowa that kicked off Hillary voters and she won New Hampshire. <clears throat> Yeah, the Iowa-New Hampshire correlation has been fairly weak. Yeah. Um, but it is the case that there will be some candidates. I agree. Who are, benefit. Yeah. I mean, the the usual term is there are three tickets out of Iowa. So mm -hmm. There's one winner. Uh, there's uh, one second place. And, and one, one other uh, gets to go to New Hampshire, and that's it. Um, you rarely see, you know, candidate fields that are bigger than that. Right. Okay, final, final question. Gentlemen, uh, just tell me one thing you're looking for on Monday night, and I've already told you mine. I'm looking to see if the Democrats finish over 171,000 or less than 236 or over 236,000. So I'm looking at their turnout to see what it says about enthusiasm because if you looked at the results in 2016, the Republican turnout was much stronger than the Democratic turnout that year, and Trump ended up winning the state by 10 points. Yeah, so I think it'll set, it'll be over 236. Over um, 236, a new record. It's partly you've got a lot of candidates mobilizing a lot of voters, mm -hmm. and you also have incredible Democratic enthusiasm this year. I'm uh, one thing I'm looking at to see how how Biden does because I think the one way to for the Democrats to make sure it's over, if Biden wins Iowa, that means he has a pretty good chance to. The worst he'd do in that case was win three or four. Doug? Yeah. Is, is he the straw that stirs the drink, or is it Bernie Sanders? Um, I think if you average the polling, uh, it looks like Sanders is uh, uh, the strongest candidate at this point. Okay. And I went through the whole podcast without asking either one of you for predictions, and you know what? We're not going to do it. <laughs> we <laughs> learned our lesson in 2016, I think. Really our predictions. <laughs> our, 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 I could just waffle. I can waffle for you. Like, It'll be one of the following. No, one of the following. Yeah, I am happy to predict elections. Caucuses, no thank you. Well done. Dave Brady and Doug Rivers enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. And in this podcast, those Democrats about to be put before the voters of Iowa. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. Get them to have a listen. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Dave Brady and Doug Rivers, straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst, that's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Dave Brady is not on social media, it never will be, but Doug Rivers is. His Twitter handle is at Doug underscore Rivers, and that is at Doug underscore Rivers. I also mentioned his fine polling firm, YouGov. Their Twitter handle is at YouGov, that's Y-O-U-G-O-V. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.